Good morning, ladies. And gentlemen. So good to sing. Um, I don't know about you, but my heart has already been melted and lifted by the, those songs of worship. Thank you, girls. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, everyone. So we are here again this morning, and we are looking to the Holy Spirit. Are you all still up for a good stretch? Is that, is that still on the agenda? Just for your sitting, can you put your hands up again and just... Reach to the Father, thank him for the good night's rest, thank him for all he has done in the past, thank you for bringing, him, for bringing you to this moment, and as you raise your hands and open your arms out, thank him with expectancy for what he's going to do today, as you open up your heart and your life, bring your hands up to your heart, ask him to fill your heart with light today, ask him to fill you with peace. And as you put your hands towards him, give him your heart afresh today. Give him, give it over to him. Ask him to do a beautiful new thing in your heart today. So last night we looked at the, the heroes, the people who have stood in line, who have gone before us. And we are now following on and we've come to this character called Nehemiah. He was living in Persia. You'll remember from last night that the, many of the Jews had returned to Jerusalem. This man called, remember the man with the rubber ball, the Z rubber ball, the rubber ball? Remember him? He had led the first group of exiles back to Jerusalem and they had started and they'd taken a long time. They'd stopped and started but they'd eventually, they had actually eventually rebuilt the temple. It wasn't anything like what it had been in the good old days, but at least it was rebuilt. And Nehemiah is still living in what used to be Persia, it's been now taken over by the, or it used to be Babylon, it's now taken over by the Persians. So let's read a few verses just to get us opened and into the story. It says in Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Achilleah, it came to pass in the month of, I needn't go into all of these months, let's go down a little bit. It was around the springtime, that's enough to tell us, it was the springtime. And it says that, uh, verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. I want to read just a little bit of that in the message to you because I think it gives it very well. It says that um, they, this is what they told Hezekiah. The exiled survivors who are left there in the province are in bad shape. Conditions are appalling. The wall of Jerusalem is still rubble and the gates are, are still cinders. Now the thing with this, that if we continue to read here, we'll see that this just about broke Nehemiah's heart. It says in verse 4, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So you see that these words had a big impact 
on Nehemiah. It says in the the message, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now here's the thing. The people who had returned to Jerusalem, those who had been working in Jerusalem and had rebuilt the temple, they had grown accustomed to brokenness. They were living in a pile of rubble, but they'd become comfortable with the rubble. Nehemiah, when he heard the true situation, the true assessment that the situation was appalling, that the conditions were appalling and that the gates were like cinders and the the walls like rubble, he was not not going to accept this. It broke his heart. And I'm thinking that today, or we can say today, last night I was getting my todays and tonight's mixed up. This morning... I believe that many of you have come and you're aware that there are ruins or rubble in your life and you want to see God moving and you want something, you want God to do something about that. But I also think there are some who have maybe come over this weekend and perhaps you, you're not actually aware that you're living in the middle of ruin. Maybe God wants to highlight to you that there's some rubble that he wants to get rid of. That he wants to set you free. Because rubble, rubble messes up. It doesn't help you. And we need to get rid of the rubble. And so Nehemiah he began to pray. That's the first thing we need to do when we realise that things aren't as they should be. When we realise that we're having thoughts that are not God's thoughts. When, when we realise there's rubble in here. It could be fear. It could be jealousies. It could be feeling uh, depressed. It could be feeling uh, full of unresolved grief. Grief's a good thing when you go through it the way God intends you to. It's a gift. God wants to heal you and do even deeper things as you go through gift. But unresolved gift is, is, is unresolved grief is not something you want to hold on to. You want to work through that and become more beautiful. You want to get the, the beauty for ashes as you go through the grief. And so if some of you are grieving today, that's okay, that's good, so long as God, you're bringing God into your grief and allowing him to, to turn it around to give you the beauty for the ashes, that's good. But there could be areas, and little dark areas of darkness inside you that the enemy is operating on and, and actually troubling you in ways that you don't even know why you feel out of sorts. And sometimes when we have unresolved grief and, and maybe deep-seated Anger that's never been dealt with, it can turn to bitterness, it can come out as jealousy, it can come out as impatience and, and all of the things that aren't the fruit of the Spirit. And so rubble in our lives will stop the fruit of the Spirit being coming forth in the love and the joy and the, and the, the, the peace and the long-suffering and the goodness and the kindness and the gentleness and all of those beautiful fruits of the Spirit. And of course God wants us to be free that, that the fruit of the Holy Spirit can come through. I'm getting a bit sidetracked. That's all right. So, Nehemiah, he starts to pray. Now, it's very interesting. We won't have time to read all of his prayer, but I really recommend you to read his prayer because he confesses his sin and the sin of the people, and he identifies with the people in the land. We have been challenged in Ireland a lot to pray and repent for the land and for what's happened in the past 
to, to join ourselves with the people who've gone before and with the society around us and to repent on behalf of all of that. And that's what he does. He, he, I read you a little bit from the message. I said, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, loyal to his covenant and faithful to those who love him and obey his commands. Look at me, listen to me. Pay attention to this prayer of your servant that I'm praying day and night in intercession for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, and I'm including myself. I and my ancestors among those who have sinned against you. And so he, he makes this prayer, and he prays for about three months, and then he decides, he makes a decision. Obviously God has spoken to him through his time of prayer, and he knows what he has to do. He has to go to the king. Now, Nehemiah, it tells us very early on, um, it says down in, verse, down in verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I, I was the king's cupbearer. That's what I wanted to get to. He was the king's cupbearer. What does that mean? It means that Nehemiah's job was to taste the food before the king of Persia ate the food. So that if, the, if there was poison in the food, he would die before the king. Now, I think it means a whole lot more than just tasting food before the king. I actually believe that Nehemiah was head of security because I believe that that was a huge job because the Persians were, they were very, very ruthless people. Uh, there was always guards on either side of the throne with long lances that they could easily just chop somebody's head off if they, if they said something the king didn't agree with. And so it was a very fearsome uh, place to be if you weren't in the know. And the security job would have been a big one. He would have had to be sure that everything was safe. And I believe that the, the job of tasting the king's food was the, probably the, the, the bit that, that uh, is mentioned here, but with the tip of the iceberg. But being the king's cupbearer meant that he, he was quite close to the king. He would have had a very close relationship. It was a very, very important job. And he knows now, God has spoken to him about the brokenness that's back in his country. He has never been to Jerusalem. He's only heard about it. He knows that's where the God of his fathers, that's where the temple was. He knows that's where his history was. And he feels this call that God's calling him to go back and to deal with this brokenness. And so he's decided that he's going to leave Persia, leave this very fine job, and he's, he needs to get the, the king's permission. And he's quite frightened to go to the king and ask. And this is why he prays beforehand. It says, chapter 2, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, this is the, probably the son of Esther's husband, okay, uh, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Let me tell you what it says in the message. I had never been hangdog in his presence before. So he asked me, why the long face? You're not sick, are you? Are you depressed? <laughs> now, he was very frightened. It tells us uh, that, that uh, therefore the king said, why is your face so long? This is nothing of sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, it says in the New King James Version. He became dreadfully afraid. 
This was a scary thing that Nehemiah set out to do. He was going to have to ask the king, could he leave Persia and would the king allow him to go back to Jerusalem? You see, I believe when God speaks to us and we know that he's putting something in our heart to do, the first thing we need to do is pray. We need to tell God about it. We need to express our sorrow. We need to repent. We need to do whatever we need to do, but we need to have this conversation with God. But very often, it also then moves on to a conversation with other people. And for some of you here, there may be a conversation that you need to have before you actually move into uh, getting rid of some of this rubble in your lives. I believe that I believe that Nehemiah had made a choice. He had made a choice that he was going to leave all the riches of Persia and he was going for the riches in his hometown. He was going to the rubble where he knew there were riches to be found. I want to read this verse to you from Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And I'm reading this out of the Passion Translation. Here's what it says. Here's Paul's prayer. That God would unveil within you the unlimited riches of his glory and favour until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with his divine might and explosive power. I want to read that again because I don't think that you realise that you have the, if you have asked Jesus to be your saviour, you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have explosive power inside you. Power. <laughs> that better? Explosive power. <laughs> Paul prayed that God would unveil within you, let's believe that God is going to unveil, give you a revelation this weekend. That's what we're after, isn't it? That's why we're here. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. I can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can unveil, can give you a revelation of what is actually in you. Unveil within you, listen to this, the unlimited riches. God's riches aren't limited. They are unlimited. The unlimited riches of his glory and favour. God favours you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's favour is on you? Sometimes we, we push through life as if we're having to do everything on our own. We have all the unlimited riches of God and we have his favour as well over our lives. That he would unveil within you the unlimited riches of his glory and favour until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with his divine might and explosive power. And so this weekend... We've got to decide. Are we going to be content to live with brokenness and get used to it? Let it become the familiar? Let it become the acceptable thing? This is life. We just have to get on with it? Are you going to go for the riches that are in the rubble? Are you going to come to God with a fresh and open heart and ask him to deal with the stuff that would hinder you from going forward into all that God has for you? And so he goes to this king and he asked the king permission to go back to his country. Now, let me just read it to you. I'll read it uh, in the message. I'm jumping between the message and the, the other translation. Here's what the king said. The king then asked me, so what do you want? 
Praying under my breath to the God of heaven, I said, If it please the king, and if the king thinks well of me, send me to Judah, to the city where my family is buried, so that I can rebuild it. The king, with the queen sitting alongside him, said, How long will your work take, and when would you expect to return? And I gave him a time, and the king gave his approval to send me. Then I said, if it please the king, provide me with letters to the governors across the Euphrates and authorize my travel through to Judah and also in order to Asphalt, the keeper of the king's forest, to supply me with timber for the beams of the temple forest fortress at the wall of the city and the house where I'll be living. Now look at this. The generous hand of my God was upon me in this and the king gave them to me. You know, when we set out to do what God wants us to do. We can say alongside Nehemiah, and he keeps repeating this little phrase throughout his story, God's hand was upon me. The message says his God's generous hand was upon me. When we choose to do things God's way, his hand of blessing actually rests on us. His generous hand of blessing. So Nehemiah heads off. Interesting little fact uh, that a lot, and many scholars believe that the queen who was sitting beside this king, King Artaxerxes, many of them believe that she may have been Queen Esther, that she may still have been alive and been in the palace. Now, I got this little, um, this little reading somewhere. Uh, it was an article actually written in, in the Huffington Post by Yaakov Cohen. And he says the king is sitting by him. It may have been Queen Esther. If, she, if it wasn't Queen Esther, it may have been Atossa, the, the daughter of Cyrus. But isn't that quite interesting that, that actually Esther might still have been influencing, perhaps behind the king saying, go on, go on, I know. If she was there, the king would have known her history. She would have been his stepmom, probably. We don't think it was, he was actually Esther's son. But I think it's very interesting that that influence, we talked last night a lot about how we can change our atmosphere, how we can be an influence, and we looked down that hallway of people who made an influence in their time and their generation. How good if this was Esther, that her influence would continue. And so the king gave him the big, we would say at home, the big okay. My son William, whenever he wants something, he'd go like this, okay. And, uh, and so the king gave the okay. Nehemiah was heading to Jerusalem. He was going to the gates. He was going to the broken down gates and the broken down walls. When I was in the very depth of my pain, I know you've all got different situations and different problems and, and, and situations in life and circumstances. When I was in my deepest uh, moment of pain during the time of my separation, before my divorce, there was a few years that were very especially tough for me. And I remember reading... In Isaiah 61, verse 4. And here's what it said. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and repair the ruined cities. The desolation of many generations. And I remember that that verse speaking deeply into my heart that God wanted to repair the ruins. I felt, I remember one night sitting in my home, on the floor, on the carpet, and I remember just feeling that my life was a pile of rubble, a pile of ruins. And this verse meant so much to me that God wanted to rebuild those ruins. And so I had decided that I would go after this rebuilding, and I'm praying that you will do the same. 
Nehemiah went beyond the river. And here's the thing that God whispered into my heart, that he wants to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you might imagine. I believe that's his word to you this morning. He wants to, he wants to go beyond your expectations. He's the God of the beyond. And so Nehemiah arrives this long journey from Persia, uh, what we know today as modern-day Iran, and he makes that journey right up to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, there's three guys waiting for him. Wouldn't you know it? I call them the unholy trinity. The enemy is waiting. Their names are Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and another guy that we'll meet later on, his name, his name is, um, I think I forget his name, it's a little bit further down. There's three of them. Anybody got the name? Yes, yes that's right. Three of these guys, this unholy trinity, and they're waiting. And look what it says. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah officially heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. You see, when we decide that we're going to deal with stuff, and we're, we want not only to get it, we can't help anyone else until we get ourselves sorted. And if the first step to actually reaching out and blessing others is getting our, this part of ourselves sorted. And, and the enemy hates us to make any kind of move towards dealing with the rubble in our lives because he knows so long as he has piled rubble into our lives and we're just sitting there uh, getting used to this rubble, this is the way life is, this is the way it's going to be, so long as he has us in that position, he doesn't need to fear because we're not going to be able to help anybody else because we're just closed in with rubble ourselves. So the enemy was obviously disturbed when they, when they heard that Nehemiah had arrived in the place. Now look what happened when Nehemiah got there. So I came to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. He sat for three days before he moved. I think this was a man who knew how to be still. This was a man who knew not to rush into something, but to take some time to pray. I don't think he was just having a, a sauna. I think he was waiting and praying and getting himself ready before he would make any kind of move. Then it says in verse 12, Then I arose in the, in the night... And I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one in which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent gate and the refuge gate, or you would call that the trash gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Now I want you to notice this verse 14 because we're going to come back to it next talk. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. I want you just to notice that little point in verse 14. When he got to the fountain gate, he couldn't continue to go on, obviously because there was so much rubble. The donkey couldn't get through the rubble. Sometimes we can't move and do what God calls us to do because there's that much rubble around us. We, we have to turn around. We can't actually go forward. And so Nehemiah has got to where he, God has meant him to be. Isaiah 58 says, um, and I, I love, I love this, this verse, for, for all those who are real with God and choose him, here's what it says, that God will give light in the darkness 
The Lord will guide you and satisfy your soul in drought. He will strengthen your bones. You shall be like a well-watered garden and like a spring of water. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. Are there waste places in your life? It goes on to say from Isaiah 58, You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. This is a promise for those of us who will deal with the rubble this weekend. This is a promise of what God will do in your life. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. Who wants to ride on the high hills of the earth? I do. And so Nehemiah comes, his job is not easy. Uh, Sanballat and, and these, uh, this threesome, they are not happy at all. But uh, as they move, Nehemiah comes back from doing his midnight inspection and he speaks to the people of, the, of Jerusalem and he tells them this is a disgrace, these walls are broken down, this is a disgrace. And he suggests that it's time to rebuild the walls and they get behind him, they get excited and they say, yes, we'll build with you. But look, just let me read to you in the message what, uh, what the response was. Let me just read this to you. They said, yes, we're with you, let's get started. They rolled up their sleeves, ready for the good work. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they laughed at us, mocking. Any of you ever hear that mocking laugh? Who do you think you are? Have you heard it in your own spirit? For the enemy says, who do you think you are? What are you? What do you think God's going to do with the likes of you? So they, this is the first thing they hear. What do you think you're doing? Do you think that you can cross the king? Now look at what Nehemiah said in the message. I shot back. The God of heaven will make sure we succeed. We're his servants and we're going to work rebuilding. You can keep your nose out of it. You get no say in this. Jerusalem's none of your business. Do you know, I think we need to start to talk to the enemy more like that instead of namby-pamby and going sinking down into despair. We need to come right out there and speak it out. Jerusalem was none of his business. Your heart and your life is none of the enemy's business. You're under the blood of Jesus. And we need to speak out. And there's power in the words that we speak. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we need to, more and more, to, when those thoughts come, we need to speak out and say, I don't receive that. That's not from my God. I'm not listening to you. And we need to listen and tune into heaven again. That's the way we answer, answer the enemy. And so they, they've got, the people are ready. And when we get to chapter 3, I want you to turn over to chapter 3. We're going to see that they're going to get ready to do a job on, on rebuilding this wall and rebuilding these gates. Now let me just mention, first of all, what do the gates symbolize? Well, gates literally in olden times, gates were obviously the entry points uh, of a city where you went in or you went out of the city through the gates. And spiritually speaking, I believe the gates stand for entry points for blessing and going out of the gate to bring blessing to others. 
So God wants to bring blessing through the gates. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the prophets often stood in the gates and prophesied from the gates. So gates were very, very important. Proverbs 8 verse 1 and 3 says, Does not wisdom cry, and understanding lift up her voice? She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city. And so gates were extremely, they were extremely important in the natural, but they're also extremely important spiritually. The walls speak of boundaries. We all need boundaries. The walls kept the city safe. And we need to have spiritual walls that are good spiritual boundaries that the enemy cannot ride over the boundary into your life with his lies. So we needed to repair the gates and, and the walls. Um, I love Isaiah 60 verse 18 where it says, You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. I believe that the gates speak about praising. Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and the King of glory shall come in. So we need to get our gates built up so that they're ready and open for the King of glory to come, for us to hear his word, for us to be receptive, and for us to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, and for us to be able to go out through those gates and to bless others. Now, it was amazing this morning because when we, a few of us, met to pray, Laurie brought a word from Isaiah 62 where it says, go through, go through the gates. And I have to tell you a little story about that because around about 2005, I think, we were in Uganda on a team with these girls and we were staying in a hostel in Kampala and it wasn't great at that in those days. It was pretty basic. And we usually all stayed in a huge, one big dorm and we all be piled in. But myself and another sister, another Cain sister, uh, who was with us, she and I went on a bumpy old bus, which we got in the middle of the night. Uh, and we went way down to another part of of Uganda and we were with a youth team for a few days and then we came back up again and when we got up again we were just going home the next day and so I was given a room on my own which was unheard of and it really was but this room it was like a little corner that they sort of put off and there was a room for a bed and the ceiling didn't go the whole way up the, the, you know, the wall didn't go right up to the ceiling but it was a little space that I had for the night and I remember, you know, having been there, and you know what it's like when you're in a mission and you feel stirred up. And I remember saying, God, would you give me a word? Would you give me a word for this next season of my life? What, what are you saying to me? And I accidentally stumbled on those words that Laurie read this morning. Go through, go through the gates. And I was just coming out. I had my, been divorced for a couple of years. I'd gone through a lot of tumultuous times through the 90s and was... I come in to see, I managed to get into the 20s and I'd stumbled on these girls and, and God had brought me out to mission and, and God was beginning to really excite me about what he was doing and, and so I, I read these, these uh, verses go through, go through the gates and I started to pray and I said God whatever gates you open for me I'm going to go through them I want to do whatever you want and I was having this wonderful time with God and I really knew it was a God time so I went home I'd never heard, I'd never read those verses before and I went home and when uh, we got home, someone said, there's a conference down in Bangor. That's where these guys live. 
And so I went down to a, a conference in, in an Elam church. I didn't know anything about it. But when I got there, it was full of African Indians. And they had, do you remember the big, the big head, headdresses? And they, they were all believers. And it was, it was pretty wild, wasn't it? And Lyndale Cooley, who knows Lyndale Cooley? Nobody, he's, he's an American? Well, anyway, you should know him. <laughs> a friend of mine had talked a lot about Linda, Tyrone had talked a lot about the, this guy, this worship leader called Lyndale Cooley, and he was over from America, and he was up on the stage, and he was playing away and worshipping, and everyone was following him, and I brought my son William with me. And uh, we were, we were worshipping, and William loves to worship. He also loves people, and, and he, he loves the stage as well. But anyway, uh, we were, we were worshipping, and I had my eyes closed, and Lindy was up on the platform. Uh, you're laughing, if you remember. And, and I'm, I'm worshipping, and I'm worshipping away, and I'm forgetting that William's beside me. And I, I suddenly, at some stage, opened my eyes and discovered William was up on the stage. <laughs> with, standing beside Lindale Cooley, right beside him when he was playing the piano, and William was standing with his hands up worshiping. So I mean, practically, you know, nearly fainted. But anyway, that was okay. I don't even know how we got him down, but uh, can't remember that bit. But I do remember that uh, after the worship finished, this man stood up, and he said, I want to read something as a declaration. And what did he read? But Isaiah 62, which I'd never heard before in my life until a few days before in Uganda. And he, he shouted out, go through, go through the gates. And there was a group of people at the back and they were standing with their hands up and they were making like a passageway. And they were inviting anyone who really meant this to get down there and to walk through and they would bless us as we went through between the rows of people. Well, I can tell you, I grabbed William's hand and the two of us literally ran together. We were the first ones there and we went through that, that uh, narrow passageway that, that the people were making. And you know, it was another, another moment in my life that I haven't forgotten. So thank you, Laurie. For God, you listening to God and hearing that word, because that word was so special. And my prayer today is not for a good sermon, not for not for anything fancy, but that you would have an experience of going through these gates. Because Nehemiah went back to the country to build up gates, and they were physical <coughs> gates. But I tell you, they have a spiritual meaning. And the, the fantastic thing is. You're going to find these gates, spiritually speaking, are in the exactly right order. They are just as they should be. And so we're going to come to these gates. The first one, let's just look at chapter 3. And I think I'll probably just look at it in the message. It says, The high priest Elizabeth and his fellow priests were up and at the work. They were to work on the sheep gate. And they repaired it and hung its doors, continuing on as far as the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho worked alongside them, and next to them was Zachar, son of Emery. Now, 
as we, we're not going to read through all of this chapter 3, but we're going to pick out where these gates are. But the one thing I will say is, if you read through this yourself, you will see that they worked together and they worked an, a, alongside each other. There, there was a, a, an order to this. So the first gate was the sheep gate. Let me tell you a little bit about the sheep gate. It was a real gate. And it was the gate in the city of Jerusalem that they brought the sacrificial animals through this gate to the market. And these animals would then be purchased and brought up to the temple to be sacrificed for sin. So the sheep gate was a, a, a point of entry for the sacrificial animals to be brought in. The, 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 the sheep, do you, do you remember whenever the, um, whenever the angels came by night uh, to announce the birth of Jesus, they came to the fields of Bethlehem. Well, that's because in Bethlehem, that's where they reared the sacrificial sheep. And the sheep were reared on the hills of Bethlehem, and they were brought up, and they entered into uh, the market through the sheep gate. And this is the first gate that uh, Nehemiah and his team, and this priest, uh, the very first gate that they were going to repair. It's interesting that this gate it was exactly in front of the people's houses which reminds me that the first thing usually we have to repair is what's right in front of us. <laughs> usually if we want to get something fixed, it's right what's there in front of you. Don't try to deal with something away down the line. Just deal with what's staring you in the face. And so get ready for the gates. I believe today that you're going to need to choose what response you're going to make today because I believe God is going to speak to you. Psalm 118 says, open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall, shall enter. So this was a gate that the sheep uh, were, were taken through. Can you imagine many, many hundreds of years later, whenever Jesus came to Israel, came to Jerusalem, can you imagine, you know, you mentioned uh, Louise, somebody mentioned about the, the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. The pool of Bethesda was right beside the sheep gate. Can you imagine what Jesus felt like when he came and walked through Jerusalem? He knew that Nehemiah had repaired this many centuries before. And as Jesus would have walked past that gate, he would have known that he was going to be the sacrificial sheep. Isn't that amazing? And so this gate speaks of the cross. It speaks about how Jesus became the Lamb of God, became the, the sheep that was given up instead to pay the price for our sins instead of us having to pay that awful price. Let me just read to you some of the things that I wrote down about this. Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb before her shearers he was dumb. This is the only gate that was actually set apart, was sanctified, it was set apart. It's a picture of the cross. This gate reminds us of the price that Jesus paid when he came to this earth to be our sacrificial lamb. This is the gate that possibly Jesus might have walked through, we don't know. He might have walked through this gate on Palm Sunday presenting himself as the lamb of God. We're not sure. He was the one who was going to redeem us from ruin and restore us back to our original glory. He was going to 
come and die for our sins to get us on our feet again, just like that man at the pool. Do you want to be made well? This is the gate that we need to stay for a moment or two and meditate about this gate. And I want to ask you, do you really live in the wonder and the miracle of this gate? I want you to do a little assessment of where you are in relation to this gate. Not only does the cross bring us forgiveness, not only does the work that Jesus did on the cross give us a ticket for heaven, praise God, that is true, he's going to bring us to heaven because we're being forgiven because of what he did on the cross. But there's a whole lot more to it than that and sometimes I think we overlook it. This gate was the first gate but as we go round the gates, we're going to come right back to it again. It's going to be the last gate. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega. He's the beginning, he's the end. This gate is the most important of all the gates. This is the gate where we step into salvation, back to the Father. This is the gate where we cry, Abba, Father. This is the gate where we can know our true identity as children of God, that we belong to, to our Father. This is where we cry out in praise and adoration, knowing that God has done everything, that he has taken our grief and our sorrows. This is the gate where we can find healing. By his stripes, we are healed. This is an amazing gate. This is the gate we need to sit at and contemplate how much Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. When he was whipped, when he was nailed to the cross, when he suffered untold agony, we need to know that he did it because he loved us. This is the gate where we see the love of God. This is the gate where we see all of the, the most depraved acts of humanity, the most depraved sins that have ever been committed, we see them all being heaped on top of the Lamb of God, the one who chose to go through this gate for us. This is where we are so overcome that we need to burst out and pray, where prayer takes on a whole new meaning as we begin to adore the one who gave everything for us. This is the gate where we understand that we can now say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are your children. We are restored. We are forgiven. This is the gate where we can actually become speechless in his presence as we adore him with reverence. This is the gate where everything started. This is the gate where everything will end. We sung the song this morning about the Lamb and about who can open the book. Revelation 5, we'll come back to that again. It's, st it's still, he's going to be the centre of eternity, beginning and the end. This is the gate where we can pray, where we can rejoice. This is the gate of overwhelming joy as we realise we've been brought back to the Father. We are no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves to fear or to habits or addictions. 
The power of the blood of Jesus can break all of those things off us. This is actually the gate that opens up the way to the supernatural. This is the most important gate. I would love that you would take time around the prayer room and think about the power of this gate. This is the first gate that Nehemiah and his team began to build up and repair. Now, did you notice the very next verse goes on to say, and the fish gate, I have a bit of a lisp, fish, you got it? The fish gate. <laughs> it was the next gate that was going to be repaired. Well, what does the fish gate start what does that symbolize for you? What did Jesus say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This was a real gate. And this gate was used for the fish fish that right fish that were caught in the Mediterranean and brought up to Jerusalem. They brought all of those fish through the Fish, yes. <laughs> I'm doing well, aren't I? So it was a practical gate with a practical use. But isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit doesn't make any mistakes in the order of what we would think, well, that's just some information about building gates. Everything in the Word of God is alive. This is a Word that's living. This is a word that there are so many layers of truth. I personally believe that when we're in heaven, we will have layer and layer and layer revealed to us of truth that we have never noticed in the scriptures. The scriptures are alive. They are Jesus himself is known as the word. This word is alive. He doesn't make mistakes. So after we trust Jesus, I was eight years old when I came to the sheep gate. Eight years old. The first time in my life that I ever realized that my mother and father knew Jesus in a way I didn't. The first time I ever understood that I didn't know him the way my parents did. I wanted Jesus. And I remember my, my dad coming in that night. And I remember my mother saying, Maureen wants to know Jesus. She wants to get saved. That's the, that's the word we use. And I remember my father reading from Isaiah 53, and he put my name in there. He said, Jesus was wounded for Maureen's transgressions. And he put my name. And as a little child, I didn't even understand what it all meant, except I knew that Jesus did something on the cross that was enough to, to save me and to come in and live in my heart. That's all I knew. And in that moment... It's a transaction. It's a moment that is supernatural. It's probably the most supernatural thing we'll ever see. We're in a moment of invitation when we reach out to God. God takes us and the Holy Spirit is sealed in that moment. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 1. Sealed by the Spirit. His mark, his imprint upon us that, that we can't see. And and the people around us can't see the crest, the mark that's on you, but you're marked. You're marked by the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you, the enemy can see it, and he's afraid. And so he targets us, but he has no rule over us. He has no dominion over us, because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I remember as a little girl, the night that I came through the sheep gate, and I've never been the same, but I never really understood at that stage what a great thing it was that I had walked into. I had no idea what a great thing it was to walk through the sheep gate. 
And so I pray this weekend we can celebrate what Jesus did in a whole new way and not just take it for granted and realise it's the power that we need, the power of the cross. That's what we need in our lives. And so we come to the fish gate and we, this is the gate where we want to become fishers of men. This is the call that God has put in our lives. And I believe that this is a wonderful call. It calls, it calls us to reach out to others. It calls us to, to speak to the lost. It calls us to, to pray for others and to pray them into the kingdom. I saw this little cutting, a little, I, actually so I took it out, I, I photographed it and then cut it rather than bring the book. But I wanted to read this to you because it kind of helped me for a new way about praying for other people. Because we are fishers of men. As well as that we're also priests and I think we sung about being a holy priesthood. And, and a holy priesthood prays for other people and people who want to catch spiritual fish we need to pray for them and 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 fish you know they're they're smelly aren't they in the natural aren't fish very smelly and they need to be gutted don't they before you cook them you got them and so when we are in the business of being fishers of men we want to pray for people but we want to help them and and help them to disciple them and to see them growing and and to get cleaned up and uh, lots of times whilst they're forgiven immediately lots of times they need help to understand the word of God etc so I want to read this to you this is about praying for others and it's just a little extract from a book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership and it's by Ruth Haley Barton I think it's the same book that I read from last night here's what it says give yourself a few moments to breathe and become quiet in God's presence allow yourself the gift of enjoying the presence of God for your own soul's sake and rest for a while in the familiarity and the intimacy of your friendship with God. Then, as you're ready, allow God to bring others to your heart and mind, any person or situation that is of concern to you, someone who has asked for your prayers, any person or group of persons who has been harsh or critical or complaining or any situation that's causing you stress or requires wisdom. Imagine God asking you, is it okay for us to invite this person to join us? Or for us to look at this situation together? If you're able to say yes, welcome that person into the space where you and God are communing. And be with that person or situation in God's presence. Listen for the prayer, the desire, the groaning, that the Holy Spirit is already praying for that person or situation before the throne of grace. Ask God, how can I join you in that prayer? See if there is anything that God is inviting you to offer to that person or situation out of that prayer. Do not force or push for anything. If nothing comes, continue to rest in God relative to that situation. If wisdom or the next step does not come, determine that you will respond faithfully as God makes your way clear. If you notice resistance to inviting a person or situation into the time that you and God are sharing, feel free to tell God. No, I'm not ready 
to pray for that person. And then pay attention to that together. Even your resistance can have a lot to tell you about what is really going on inside you relative to the person or situation. I find that very, very helpful, the idea of inviting the Holy Spirit, inviting to bring a person into the presence of God. I believe that that we need to have a fresh understanding of how God operates, how God has chosen to operate through our prayers, how God chooses for us to bless each other. It's the body of Christ and, and, and the fish gate speaks about leading many into the kingdom and it's a wonderful gate. Now how's my time going? Because there's one gate I'd love to speak about. Have I time? How long have I been speaking? Okay. I'll just mention very, very quickly to give you a taster for this next one. The next gate they came to was called the Old Gate. And I really wanted to um, talk to you about this one because I think this is a very, very special gate, I believe. I should say, before we get to this gate, did you notice at the end of verse 4, it says, uh, it's going through all the people. You notice, I'm not going to read right through the fish gate, but do you see in verse 5, where it's talking about next to them and next to them, they were all in line, they were all working together, as we should be as believers, as we're trying to catch fish for God. But in, in verse 5 it says, next to them were the Tekoites, they made repairs, but, but their nobles did not put their shoulder to the work of the Lord. Isn't it strange how there's nearly always uh, around us those who really work hard and others who don't put their show, really don't give it their all. And so let's pray for those people that they will catch something as well. That, that the whole body of Christ, we're meant to move as a body together. And this chapter 3 shows us that they were all together, side by side working. But here was a small group of people who weren't actually giving it all that they could give it. And I think that's pretty sad. Then it goes into verse 6 where it says about the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. So what is the whole, what's the old gate stand for? I don't know what it stood for back then, except uh, I know that the old gate, I know that it uh, was um, in the northwest. I can just give you a little bit of information about it. Um, it was in the northwest uh, of the city, and it was called the second or the new quarter. So it's quite interesting that it was the old gate, but it was in, in the new quarter. Okay. So what I want to say about the old gate is this, and we'll maybe say a little bit now and then pick up on it and say a little more in the next session, but just to get you thinking. The old gate to me speaks of the ancient of days. It speaks about God being here before the beginning of time. He's before eternity and he'll continue. He's, he's Alpha and Omega. So we think of God being the Ancient of Days and the throne of the Ancient of Days. But here's the, the bit I wanted to get you starting to think about. When God created us in his image, he created us in his likeness. And I wonder, have you ever thought what Adam looked like? Because I can tell you, he was the most perfect specimen you've ever laid eyes on. <laughs> he was without sin. There was no sin. There was no distortion. He was made in the image of God. If Adam walked through that door as he was when God created him, we would have been probably down on our knees. C.S. Lewis says, if we could see what God's going to make us in the coming day, we might be tempted to, to worship each other. <laughs> <laughs> He was, he was beautiful. He was perfect. 
Can you imagine what Eve looked like? Wow, all those curves in all the right places. She, she, no wonder Adam said wow when he saw her. Can you imagine at the beginning, way, way back, sin had not entered the world. There was no sadness, there was no grief. They walked with God in the garden every day. They were one with God. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine how beautiful Eve was? She was, she must have been. Both of them were just stunning, beautiful specimens of humanity. God made them in his image and he made them beautiful. And here's the thing, when sin came in and began to distort that beauty, and over the ages we've seen more and more distortion and the original likeness of our creator has been have you seen, ever seen someone who has really done some terrible things, a really sinful person? Have you ever seen the look of sin on their face? And so sin distorts and it robs and it causes pain and all of that. But the old gate, the old gate speaks of how, that's how God meant us in the beginning. And that's what he's going to do for us in the end. He's going to, he, he's, he died to restore us to that beauty. And when we get to heaven, we will be finally done with the sinful body. The sin, will be, we're going to look at that as we continue over the next couple of sessions. We're going to be beautiful again, but God wants the process to start now. He says in Ecclesiastes that God makes everything beautiful in his time. God wants this beauty to start right now. And we are redeemed. He has paid the price for us. That we, we can actually start, we're saved. His spirit is in us. So we can start becoming beautiful right here and now. And we can become more and more beautiful as we continue to live through our lives. I believe that God wants us to understand that there's a paradox. This gate was probably in the northwest of the city. And in Nehemiah's time, the northwest was called the second quarter or the new quarter. What a paradox that the old gate led out to the new quarter. When we trust God, we become a new creation, and as we walk with him, we can step into the new thing and reclaim all that was lost. All that God planned at the beginning, we're going to get it all back again. So I want you to start thinking about that and thinking about that old gate and how God wants us to restore to us the original glory. Do you know that they were clothed? It says, Sam 8 tells us that they were actually clothed in glory and honour. Don't ask me what that glory looked like. I don't know what it was, whether it was a big cloud over them or whatever, but once they sinned, they knew they were naked. It wasn't that they realised they had no clothes on. No, they'd lost the glory covering. What was it like to be clothed in glory? We're going to know when we get there. We're going to wear glory. We're going to be dressed for heaven. God wants the process to start now. He wants us not only to go after the spiritual riches that are in Christ Jesus, but he wants us to become more beautiful like Jesus, to reflect his beauty to a lost and fallen world that has forgotten how God originally planned for us to live as daughters of the King. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, O oh God, that you will minister through these gates. I pray as we go round, Lord, that we will remember the cost, the price that you paid for us, that we might be made beautiful, that we would be forgiven, that you could deal with the rubble in our lives and take it away and make us radiant daughters of the King of Kings.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.